John chapter 16, we're going to be in verses 16 through 24. Let's read God's word together. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we believe that there is joy, lasting joy, eternal joy in your presence. Lord, and we believe that your presence is available not just in the future someday, but now by your Holy Spirit. And so Holy Spirit, we pray that as we read your word, as we study your word, as we understand who you are, as we look into the face of Jesus today, God, that you would fill our hearts with joy. God, many of us came in here sorrowful today, maybe for specific circumstances and reasons, things that we're going through, Lord, or just generally, it's been a season of melancholy. and God, I pray that as your word says, our joy, our, our sorrow will be transformed into joy. Lord, would you do that in us today? We thank you for your word, God. And, and Lord, we pray not only for understanding, but for courage to obey what it says to us today. And so, Lord, teach us and lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, we have a problem with joy. Our culture has a problem with joy. Our world has a problem with joy. And that is that it's transient. Joy is temporary. It's here one moment. It's gone the next. If we struggle to experience it, even when we do, we know that it doesn't last. The thrill that we receive from the things that makes us happy, it always fades, always. It always fades. It's like a good joke. I love a good joke. But the funniest a good joke will ever be is the first time you hear it. 
And then if you hear it again, it's, we actually stop each other when they try to make us laugh. They've got a joke. I've got a joke for you. We even prepare them. We say, stop me if you've heard this. Don't let me bore you with something happy if you have already heard it before. And we stop and we go, ah, I've heard this before. Far be it from me to listen to a joke a second time. The new car is, is the most exciting time. It's the first time you drive it. The new relationship will never be more exciting than the, the first date, a new job. After you receive the joy of getting the offer letter, at the end of the day, it's still work. Joy fades. This is what time does. Like the sun that fades the upholstery of that new car. Time will dull the shine of the thing that we once treasured, the thing that made us happy, the thing that gave us joy. This is true even without bringing tragedy into the equation. So many of us know how a good day can come crumbling down with one unexpected phone call. See, God has put this desire for joy into our hearts We long for it. We crave it. We look for it. We look for something to to, to cheer our spirits. We look for something to enjoy, to praise, to delight in. And we don't often see it as much as we want to. And the happiest of us only experience those moments of joy possibly more frequently, maybe more powerfully. But at the end of the day, those experiences still fade and we're left wanting more. And those of us who experience joy oftentimes are chasing it like a drug, just from one high to the next, looking for joy, looking for something to cheer us. So our problem with joy is that it feels temporary. But I think there's something in this text that Jesus, Jesus is inviting us into a change of perspective. I think Jesus wants to change our perspective today. See, Jesus says in our text that it is not joy that is temporary or fleeting, but sorrow. It's actually sorrow that's temporary. He says that his disciples will weep and lament, but before too long, their sorrow will be turned to joy. And he uses this illustration of a woman in labor. Now, far be it from me to try to explain labor and delivery to a room of at least 50% women. But Jesus uses this illustration of labor. This is how I understand it. He says, there's great distress and pain in childbearing. And while many women may believe that Jesus is exaggerating when he says they no longer remember the pain, what Jesus is saying is that the joy of bringing new life into the world is so overwhelming that the pain no longer represents the entire experience. Pain no longer is what defines the experience because new life has been brought into the world. And so in the same way, the sorrow that seems to overwhelm Jesus' disciples, the sorrow that he tells them will overwhelm them for a season will not be the thing that defines their experience, will not be the thing that defines their existence. And Jesus doesn't just say that the sorrow we experience in life will be worth it. 
Often that's the perspective that we receive. Oh, it'll be worth it. You'll go through this and you'll see what God will do. It will be worth it. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say the sorrow will be worth it. He says it'll be transformed. Sorrow transformed into joy. Can you imagine that? That's a pretty big promise. He says their sorrow will be turned into joy because new life will be brought into the world. Now, the interesting thing about this is Jesus says the availability of joy hinges upon the disciples' ability to see Jesus. The main focus of the text is on this discussion about what it means to, in a little while, you will no longer see me. And then again, in a little while, you will see me. They don't understand what's going on. And so we know today... We have the whole, we have the rest of the story. The disciples are in this moment with Jesus. But today we know that when Jesus is speaking these words to them, he is hours away from being arrested and crucified. Just hours away. This is part of uh, John uh, 14 through 17. It's called the farewell discourse. He's saying goodbye to his disciples. And in just a little while, he's going to be arrested and crucified. And so this is the thing that is going to happen, that is going to cause the disciples to weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. See, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the Romans, they believed that killing Jesus was doing a service to God and to Caesar, respectively. And so they rejoiced that they removed this troublemaker, that they removed this this. Uh, a teacher who was stirring up controversy in the people. And so they rejoiced. But in the death of Jesus, the disciples see something very different. They saw all of their hopes and dreams die. Because they believed that Jesus would be the Messiah who would defeat all of their enemies. And here they saw their Messiah defeated. Let me put this into perspective. They're not only going to experience the loss of someone that they love. Okay, many of us have experienced that. We know that sorrow. We know that, that, that feeling of being deflated and just and, and grieving tragedy. They're not, they're not just experiencing the loss of someone that they love. They're not just experiencing the loss of someone that they love in such a humiliating and hostile way. Jesus was paraded through the streets, bloodied, crucified, naked. And the the intended result is so the community would look and see what happens when anyone defies Caesar. He was mocked and ridiculed and crucified. And so The disciples who are watching this, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah that God had sent to defeat their enemies and they're about to see their champion utterly humiliated. And it would look to them like Satan had defeated God. Think about that for a second. We live in a world where we like to believe the good guy always wins. And when we watch a movie where the good guy doesn't win, we don't know how to deal with it. Now, this is their real life, and they believe they just watched Satan, the liar of liars and murderer of murderers, kill 
their Savior. The hopelessness and sorrow that they are experiencing is the sorrow that comes from eternal hopelessness. There's, there's, no, there's no hope. There's no chance for them anymore. But Jesus says that again, after a little while, he'll be taken from them, but again in a little while, they will see him again. We know that Jesus is speaking of his resurrection from the dead just three days later. And listen to how John describes the first meeting of Jesus between Jesus and his disciples after the resurrection. John 20, 20 says, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Obviously, right? Like he came back from the dead. They are overjoyed when they saw the Lord, not just because they missed him, but because they realized in that moment that the greatest weapon that Satan has is death and the fear of death and their champion just conquered it. They were overjoyed. They were beside themselves. They were exuberant because what had appeared to have been defeated was victorious. What happened on the cross was the exact opposite of what they anticipated when they thought they were watching Satan kill their hopes of salvation. Jesus conquered the devil and gave hope for eternal life. The grave could not hold Jesus. Death could not stop Jesus. On the cross, Jesus strips Satan of his power. Your debt for sin has been paid. Death has been defeated. And God's love for you is perfect and proven on the cross. Why were they overjoyed? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Why can we rejoice today? We can rejoice through sorrow because Jesus has risen from the dead. And this joy of salvation can never be taken from us because Jesus is alive. And so the reason that we can have joy in a world that is full of sorrow is because the saddest thing of all, which looms over all of us, no one here gets out alive to quote the famous theologian, Jim Morrison. Nobody under the age of 40 got that. (laughs) There's a band called The Doors. Maybe listen to them, maybe don't listen to them. Nobody here gets out alive. Death looms over all of us. And the greatest enemy of humanity is defeated. And so the ability To see Jesus for who he is, to see what he accomplished on the cross, to know it, to understand it, to recognize it, to affirm it, is the key to experiencing lasting joy. We have to see Jesus for who he is, but there are things that will blind our ability to see Jesus clearly. We're often blinded by a false view of God, a false view of Jesus. The thing that will have the most power to blind us from the ability to see Jesus as he is, is thinking you see him when it's only an imposter. Thinking you have him, thinking you know him, but the Jesus you know is not the Jesus of reality. 
It's like the, the Where's Waldo books, right? All over the page, there's imposter Waldos. And if you see something that you think is Waldo, it might not be Waldo. But if you just turn the page, found him. No, you didn't. Okay, there are countless uh, false Jesuses that the Bible rejects. Because there's only one Jesus that the Bible proclaims. The historical Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal son of God, made incarnate, come as a baby, made human, Emmanuel, God with us on Christmas morning, who who died for sin, who raised from the dead. That is the only Jesus the Bible knows. Any other Jesus that, that, that tickles your fancy might not actually be Jesus. And if you, the harder you cling to an imposter Jesus, the harder it'll be to actually see Jesus. Our false views about God and who he is often blind us from the real thing. But we can also be blinded by a false view of ourselves. So we're conditioned to believe that our lives belong to us and God should be so lucky that I give him a piece of my life. Right? This is how we operate. We believe that like my life is so great. God just wants me to, to, to give him a, a portion of my life. And when I do, that's good enough. It's the thought that counts. It's like a Christmas present that, you know, a, a child makes with their hands and gives. It's beautiful because they just thought to, to, to give this to you. That's not, our lives were given to us by God that we might give him back to him. And oftentimes what we return to him is this dumpster fire. Like someone borrowing your car to run an errand and then they return it to you two weeks later on a tow truck after entering it into like a demolition derby or something. And we're like, I brought your car back, God. No, God gave us our lives in, in innocence and purity and holiness and wonder and righteousness. So that we would give it back to him for his, his own glory. He's not just wanting a piece of our lives. He wants the whole thing. So we, we don't just take our lives and add a little bit of God to it. No, our lives are to be absorbed into the kingdom and the mission and the purpose and the glory of God. Everything belongs to him. So oftentimes when we feel like Oh, we've done enough. I just, you know, add a little bit of God to my life. I'm, I'm, I'm good. It blinds us from seeing how much more, not only that God wants from you, but in giving more to him, how much more he wants to give you, how much more joy he wants to give you, how much more peace, how much more of his spirit he wants to give to you, how much more of his mission he wants to invite you into. We often restrict what we're able to experience of God because, well, this is enough. God should be so lucky that I give him anything. Often we're blinded by a false view of forgiveness. See, in the same way that we, we, we keep God at arm's length by only giving him a little bit, sometimes we keep God at arm's length because we believe that if he actually knew who we were and if he actually knew what we were involved in, he would never accept us. We feel that we're unworthy of forgiveness. We're blinded by this false view of forgiveness. And I think, yes, it's important that we recognize that Jesus' standard of holiness is perfect. 
what he requires is absolute righteousness. His standard for holiness is perfect, but he also has a perfect record of forgiveness. Nobody who has ever come to God in Christ with their sin and asked for forgiveness by the grace of God, the blood of Jesus shed for them on the cross, nobody has ever been turned away. You're not going to be the first. Your sin will not be accepted by God. But don't let your sin keep you from being accepted. Come to him and ask for grace and you will find it. Lastly, we're often blinded by a false view of joy. Worldly pleasure is a cheap substitute for lasting joy. We're often so busy going from one high to the next, purchasing a new thing, experiencing a new experience, taking a new vacation, finding a new relationship, finding something that keeps us just moving from one high to the next, that we miss out on the fact that there is something so much more, some, a joy so much deeper that God wants to give to us. Pastor Mike said last week that we need to deal ruthlessly with the distractions in our lives that keep us from peace. And the same is true. We need to deal ruthlessly with the substitute pleasures, the worldly pleasures that keep us just satisfied enough that we don't actually find fulfillment in what we were made for. See, Worldly pleasures are like soup, okay? Soup might be delicious, but no one has ever said, oh, I'm so full because of all that soup, okay? That's why we invented chili, right? It's soup for people who are hungry and actually want to eat. The worldly pleasures, it's like, it's like soup. It tastes good. It doesn't satisfy. Okay, you were made to be satisfied in nothing but God's presence alone. The thing that we hunger for, the thing that we crave is the presence of Jesus. What we need is the Lord and nothing else will satisfy And only when we see Jesus for who he is, the one who died and was raised, and trust in him will we be able to take part in the joy that he offers. Listen to 1 John 1 through 4. It says, That which was from the beginning, speaking of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things that our joy may be complete. See this concept of, of 
seeing Jesus can kind of be like this esoteric or inaccessible thing to us because he's not just walking around on the earth that we can take a pilgrimage to. But the beauty of what John is saying in 1 John is that those who did see Jesus, those who walked with him and and heard his ministry and and heard his promises and his parables and, and understood the kingdom because of Jesus' teachings, those who looked at him on the cross and saw their world come crumbling in, those same ones who saw him in the upper room when Jesus came and said, peace be with you after he had raised from the dead and they touched the wounds in his hands and they saw the wound in his side. Those same disciples who experienced Jesus firsthand, they said, this testimony that I'm giving you concerning that which we saw, if you believe it, you actually by the Holy Spirit will have the same experience as we had when we looked at him. That you, when you hear the testimony of Jesus, the good news of who he is and what he's done, and you believe it and you say, yes, Lord, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you raised from the dead. I believe that because of your victory, you're going to give me life after the grave. I believe that thing. It says that by the spirit, we have the same encounter, the same that tangible experience of the risen Christ as they had in the first century. Do you understand how important it is to see Jesus clearly? To know who he is, to know that he's not just some good moral teacher who came to teach us about sacrifice and died tragically. No, he came to show us that the grave will not hold those who trust in the resurrection power of Jesus. Come on. Our death is this transition from mortality to immortality. And that means that in life, any sorrow is just on the other side of transition to joy. That we'll actually look at our lives and not just say that it was worth it. But we'll look at our lives and see God's presence in that. And we'll actually be able to say it was glorious. God, your presence in my life, your joy in my life, it's glorious. We receive joy through faith in Jesus. But listen here, joy must be cultivated. It must be cultivated. A farmer can let his land lie fallow for a season and it might produce a crop because of what was there from the previous year but it will not be as abundant. It will not flourish as it would if it were cultivated. The same is true for our joy. We'll experience joy in this world because we have the spirit of God with us, because we have God's, God's power, his presence, his people, but it will not be to the same degree as it would be if cultivated. And so there are some ways to cultivate lasting joy. If, if joy is available in the face of Jesus, if joy is available in the presence of Christ, then the way we cultivate joy is by seeking Jesus, by seeking his character, by seeking his will, by seeking him, by looking for him. And one of the ways we do that is in God's word. If you want to know what Jesus is like, what Jesus is not like, or if you want to know about one of those imposter Jesus that people are proclaiming in the world, whether it's true or not, we have to look to the word. 
There's only one Jesus. And it's the Jesus the Bible proclaims. All the others are just lies spun by the enemy to throw you off the scent. If we want to know Jesus, we need to look for him in his word and seek him out. We need to seek his will in prayer. We learn the will of God, the character of God, as we pray, as we ask him to move in our lives and experience the prayers that he answers. Jesus said that anything we pray for in his name, which means according to his character, according to his reputation, in the ancient world, a name wasn't just a moniker. It wasn't just something that you called someone. It represented their entire character. And if we pray according to the character of Jesus, Jesus says, nothing will be withheld from you. Anything you ask in my name, it will be done for you. Few things cultivate joy like answered prayer. Those of you who have experienced God answer prayers, maybe in in crazy, miraculous ways or even just ordinary ways, you know that nothing cultivates joy like answered prayer. But how can our prayers be answered if we're not praying? Pray with one another. Pray for one another. Let them pray for you. Sow the seeds of prayer that you can reap a harvest of joy. Praying is an investment in future joy as we see God answer and we rejoice. Cultivate joy in prayer and respond in worship. Worship is the most natural thing we could experience when we see something beautiful, when we recognize Jesus' glory, his, 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 his worth, his value. Worship is the natural response. We, we praise the things that we love. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch, to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. The natural response to God's presence is worship, it's praise, it's celebrating what we delight. And if we keep it in, it's actually keeping the delight from being as great as it should be, sharing it with others, building a a momentum of worship and glory and praise. That's why we worship every Sunday. We hear the good news. We can't help. We need uh, an avenue. We need an outlet to, to just explode in praise and enjoyment of who God is. We cultivate joy through worship. And we cultivate joy by seeking Christ in the body of Christ. 
in the church. Our brothers and sisters, one another, believers, are empowered by the Spirit of Jesus to manifest the presence of Jesus when we gather in worship. Oftentimes, when we're not uh, appreciating Christian fellowship in the worship gathering on Sundays in community, when we're not investing into the body of Christ, the brothers and sisters, the body of believers, or if we're just taking a seat and not participating, not loving, not serving, not investing, just spectators or consumers, not those contributing to the body of Christ. When we, when we distance ourselves from the presence of Jesus in the body of Christ, well then, don't be surprised if your enjoyment of Jesus is being hindered. This is one way, one primary way we are encouraged to enjoy Jesus is by being with one another and investing into one another's lives to see the goodness of God in the face of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And together, as we worship, as we gather, as we serve one another, as we enjoy God together, we wait for the day when we will see Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven, returning to wipe away every tear from every eye, to make all things new and to, to, to transform our sorrow into joy. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Right now, the best we can do with the word of God and in prayer and in community and worship, the best we can do is we see in a mirror dimly. It's a little foggy. It's true. It's real. But he says, then we will see Christ Face to face. He says, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. To know Jesus the way Jesus knows me, I cannot fathom the day. To see his glory, to know his goodness, That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're longing for. I just want to close with this. If you're wrestling with your understanding of Jesus today, or struggling to rid your life of the pleasures that distract you, or keep you numb to the true joy that is available in Jesus, the things that dull our senses to God's glory. When Jesus speaks of his resurrection to his disciples in this text, in verse 22, he says, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Let it be a comfort today. That in seasons of low visibility, okay, when things are foggy and cloudy, maybe you feel like you can't even see what's in front of your nose. You're looking for Jesus. You're longing for that glimpse of, 
of Christ, to see who he is and to see how it, it, it applies to your life and transforms you from the very inside out in seasons of low visibility. Know for certain that Jesus never takes his eyes off of you. He says, I will see you again and no one will take that joy from you. And so we can go to him today, the one who knows us, who sees us, who loves us, who longs to be with us more than than we long to be with him. Despite our failures to seek his face, he has come to seek you and to save you. He is attentive to you. And so let's go to him now together in prayer. Let's go to him together in worship. And let's ask him, not just to teach our minds something today, not just to give us energy to to worship today. Let's ask him to give us a glimpse of his glory. Moses stood on the mountain before God and said, God, I want to see your glory. And God passed before him. And Moses' face after that incident, it shined for days. And when he came down the mountain, the Israelites Israelites were like, put a veil over your head. Like we can't handle the glory shining off your face. Let's pray for a vision of God's glory in this place. That when we leave this place, we would shine like lights in this world. That carpentry, the coastlands and the nations would know that there is a joy beyond the joys that they're wasting their time with. That Jesus is our greatest treasure. That Jesus is the most beautiful thing we could ever waste our time with, if it could ever be wasted. Let's ask him to do it. Father, give us a vision of your glory. But give us a vision of Christ on the cross was not his execution device. It was his throne. As he was high and lifted up, King of kings, Lord of lords, died in our place, risen from the dead. Not just to give us joy, but to give us life. Jesus, we want to see you in this place. We believe in faith that you are who you say you are. Would you well up in us the joy of our salvation that can never be taken from us? Do it, Lord, please. We pray it in Jesus' name, trusting that we're asking according to your will and according to your character. Reveal in our hearts the goodness and beauty and glory of Christ today and give us joy. In Jesus' name, amen.